Muted. Hello. All right. Hey, hey welcome you guys uh, to TLC. Uh, if this is your first time, my name is Tony. I'm the pastor here. Thank you guys so much for coming out and worshiping with us. We pray that God's word and just the fellowship of uh, friends and family here uh, will bring you closer to your, your, your God and uh, acknowledgement of him. Uh, we, uh, we've been going through a series, a series of host, uh, a call to holiness in a hostile world, right? You know, the theme of TLC for 2022 was rooted in Christ, um, a year of Christ-centered growth. Right? We really want to see our people um, going back to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to, to, to have a relationship with God, to, to be with God, to draw from him in every aspect of their life. We spent a big chunk of the year, beginning of the year, just really talking about that. What does it look like to be with Christ? What does it look like to walk with Christ? What does it look like to um, be in relationship with Christ? But being in relationship also requires, after a certain time, a, a way in which you begin to live that relationship out, in which you begin to embody that relationship, that the world will know that you are his. And, and, and we've talked about to live holy lives in a hostile world because if we're honest, the, the culture, the narrative of our world is not particularly uh, are fond of the Christian faith, of what we stand for, what we don't stand for, or what we love and we don't love. The narrative is totally against us. And so how... In this world, do we live continuously by being with Christ, holy, sacred, distinct, unique lives in the midst of that, right? And we, we talked about a couple of things. We talked about to live holy lives in a hostile world, it requires you to embody holiness by taking in God's word, right? I mean, like, we fill ourselves daily with social media that tells us what? Malice, deceit. Anger, hypocrisy, slander. We feel ourselves on the day-to-day scrolling through our reels and our TikTok feeds over and over, constantly, uh, in some way, brainwashing us. You know how crazy this is, the, the whole social media thing? My son knows every single candidate that's, that's being elected in the next uh, few weeks. He's like, Daddy, are you voting for Jay Chen or Michelle Steele? I'm like, how, how do you know these things, right? Like, how, like Daddy, it's... It's all over the place. I'm like, where? Right? And he's like, and he's telling me, like, I don't think you should vote for Jay Chen. I'm like, why not? And he's telling me all the reasons that he heard. And he's like, but I don't think you should vote for Michelle Still either. I'm like, why not? It's like all these other reasons. I'm like, like, hey, and then and they, they send it to him. And, oh, man, it's just great. Anyways, point, point is, we fill ourselves daily on a day-to-day basis with all of these things. No wonder the amount of toxicity that we're putting into our lives what is actually really coming out? And so to live holy lives in a hostile world, what, what we need to remember is to embody the word of God, to take that in on a day-to-day basis. Not just when it's convenient, not just when we have, but on a day-to-day basis. We, we talked about living holy in a hostile world requires us to epitomize holiness in our submission. We show the world who we are as people of God as we learn to submit Parents, kids, submitting to their parents, submitting to our local authorities, submitting to our government, even the emperor who is in every possible way, right, not faithful or good to us, but calling us to an, an attitude of submission. 
talked about exemplifying holiness in our marriage, how you honor your spouse, becomes a distinct, unique mirror into the very heart of the Christian life. This is how he treats his wife. This is how she treats her husband. This is how they communicate, connect to each other. This is distinct. This is unique. This is sacred. This is different. And we talked about, lastly, um, our brother Kevin preached upon, you express holiness by living righteously. That's just not knowing it inwardly, but actually living it outwardly in our lives. So today I want to I continue this, this line of thought because Peter, Peter is writing to a bunch of uh, believers scattered around the Roman Empire who are undergoing massive suffering, massive persecution. They're being tortured left and right. They're being hunted down in their homes. They're being uh, thrown into the gladiatorial uh, coliseums to be eaten, to be, to be a toy. They're, they're, they're being separated from their families. They're being killed left and right. They're, they're, they're used as gas lamps for dinner parties. And so he writes to these believers who are living in a very hostile world. And he's telling them the Christian life is about suffering. The Christian life is going to require suffering. And today what I'm going to share with you is going to be very, something very difficult to listen to. It's very difficult to preach because it's very hard to live out. I'm going to ask of you that to be holy, separate, distinct for your God requires you to suffer. Not just to embrace it if it comes, not just to be willing to have it if it happens, but to actually choose it. To choose to suffer. So if you want to continue the ease and comfort, a life that just exists, then don't listen. Go on your phone. It's okay. But if you want your life to matter, if you want this one life that you have to matter, then lend me your ears as I share with you. To live holy in a hostile world requires you to suffer. I'm going to tell you off the bat, I did not write this message. Actually, uh, our brother Paul wrote this message. And as we were doing the uh, preaching lab, I was listening to it. I was just so convicted by it. And so I was like, I could continue my message or just use his, right? And so I decided I'm just going to use his message, right? I hope I do it justice. I hope I'm able to express all the nuance and heart that God has given to him to share it, but it was, it, was a, it was a strong, convicting message that I felt like, I should let him preach it for you guys today, but I didn't want him to burn him out yet, right? I mean, there will be a day where I'll burn him out, but not yet, right? Uh, so I will, I will do my best to uh, share this message to you in its entirety, modified, of course, for you guys, because he preaches to youth, right? But to live holy in a hostile world, It requires you to choose suffering. And to choose suffering, you must have a resolve. You must have a conviction. You must have a stand. You must have the desire in your heart to say this, I would rather suffer than sin. I will not waste my life. I will lose in order to win. In order to live a life that is separate, distinct, unique in this world. A light that exemplifies 
that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry to tell you, church, you have to suffer. But to suffer, these three things needs to be part of your life. You must resolve, first, to be willing to suffer rather than sin, to willing to have suffering, to choose suffering rather than to sin, to not waste your life, and to lose in order to win. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. Let me read verses 1 through 6 here. Therefore, therefore, everything that has been said before, live righteously, is what our brother Kevin preached about last week, right? Because this is who God is. This is because he had died for us. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, this is our application here. This is what we are called to do. Arm yourself also with the same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. How do we live holy lives in a hostile world? We choose to suffer. To choose to suffer, the first resolve that you must have in your heart, okay, this is not, I mean, again, this is not a convenient thing. This is not a, a request. This is something that God is saying that it is the quality, the characteristic of those who follow him. It is resolved to suffer rather than to sin. Look at verse 1. He says this, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same mentality, same attitude, because he who has suffered is, uh, in his body is done with sin. What is he saying here? Notice I said resolve. I said choose it. Conviction. Stand in it. Not willing, not just embracing it if it comes, but to choose to suffer. Why? See, are you calling us to be masochists here? Are we calling us to like walk around whipping our bodies saying I'm suffering for Jesus? Are you calling us to live like horrible lives just because, you know, we're followers of Jesus? I'm not saying that, Okay. I'm saying this, look, look at what Jesus did. Look at the heart of what we follow as believers. Look at the heart of Christianity. For those of you guys who have not taken Jesus seriously, let me show you with you the heart of the Christian message. The heart of the Christian message was that he chose to suffer. He could have done so much more with his life. He could have been a general. He could have been a leader. He could have been an actual king. But he chose to suffer in order to do what? To eradicate the one thing that actually will kill you forever, sin. The one thing that we take so lightly in our lives. The one thing that we don't even turn to sometimes. The one thing that we kind of just brush off because we think like, yeah, it's all right. Everything should be okay. Everything will work itself out in the end. So we brush off the idea of sin. But Jesus chose to suffer 
in order to eradicate its hands, its clutches upon the life of those who will call, be called his children. Jesus resolved to be what? To be stoned. Jesus resolved to be hated. He resolved in his heart to be misunderstood, to be ostracized. To, he resolved in his heart a fate worse than death, which is the total separation from the Father, from God the Father, so that why? He can defeat sin itself. What is he calling us to do? Peter is telling us this. Choose suffering rather than to sin. The way in which you begin to have the same attitude as Christ, the same action as Christ who chose suffering to free sin, you choose suffering. Peter's saying choose suffering so that you will now have a new determination. Because of what Christ has done, you now have a new determination, a new attitude to say this, I would rather suffer than to sin again. If it costs the life of my Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, if it costs his life, sin was that egregious to God. It took his life. I would rather choose suffering now than to dance with the very thing that grieved his heart. I would rather choose to be last, choose to not make it, choose to be ostracized, choose to be hated, choose to be canceled, than to dance with the very thing that took my Lord to the cross. It's a mindset that Peter is calling us to have. To be resolved to suffer rather than to sin. He said this. He said, arm yourself. You know what that, that phrase means? Arm yourself. It, it is a military phrase. It is a phrase of a man, of a woman who's in war, in a battle. Put on the armor. Get ready for battle. You're about to go to war. Arm yourself now. Be prepared. Be vigilant. Because if we are actively arming ourselves, if we're actively saying, I will choose suffering rather than sin. If it, if it means that I will have to suffer, then I will choose it. Rather, if we're arming ourselves with that mentality, with that attitude, with that state of mind, then what begins to happen is we're not engaging in sin. We have no time for it. See, the Christian life is a battlefield, isn't it? We rage war against ourselves, against the darkness that's inside, against the very sins that's there. We rage war against these things. We rage war against the principalities of this world, the spiritual authorities of this world who is trying every possible way to throw every single narrative, new ideas, nuance at us to turn us from the faith, to move us away, to disregard us, to make us useless in God's kingdom. We are raging war. But here's the question, brothers and sisters, is are you arming yourself? Or are you at peace? Right? Do you find yourself constantly in a war with your mind and what's going on in your heart? Do you find yourself constantly discerning what is being driven? Is it your selfishness that's driving this action? Is it your own desire for Attention, need, lust, power, greed. What is it that is battling? Are you arming yourself to wage war against that? Or have you just kind of just submitted to it? See, if you're a non-believer, you don't really have a battle because you're already into it. Your natural sense of selfishness, that's a natural thing. That's, that's not just being human. I'm just being human. But a believer, a son of God, a daughter of God, born again, 
There's a war going on. And unless we are arming ourselves, willing to suffer, where do we find ourselves? Dancing back into the life of sin. Let me give you an example here. You guys know the Queen Mary, right? In Long Beach? It just sits there, right? It's a, it's, I think it's a museum now, or at least that's what I'm told through this illustration, right? It sits in the museum. It's a boat that, that has a great picture of peacetime and wartime. I think there was a time when it was used as a museum when, when you go into each of the, the sections and you would see a partition. And the partition will show you this is, the boat, this is how the boat was during peacetime. This is how the boat was during wartime. So let's say, for example, you go to the dining room. There's a huge partition down the dining room. One side, wartime. The other side, peacetime. And on the peacetime, you see the luxury, the, uh, the, the luxury life. You see, you see all of the, um, the, the knives, the forks, 15 plates for one setting, for one person. Right? All of that during peacetime. The high-end people, people who are high culture, patrons of the high culture, living this way. And on the other side, during World War II, you see what? You see a simple tray for one person, a metal tray. That's it. There's a difference between peacetime and wartime. You go to the bedroom area. You will see the beds folded nicely, decadent, paints and everything. You go into the war side, partition. You will see eight tiers of beds, bunk beds, lined up top to bottom. During peacetime, 3,000 people visit the Queen Mary to enjoy its luxury. During wartime, that boat carried 15,000 off to war. And if the peacetime people, those who walked in, right, and they saw the wartime version of their boat, they would have thought, this is crazy. This is insane. Why would you do this? Why would you do this with such a magnificent boat? How, why, what would even cause you to turn such a beautiful, wonderful boat that I have loved into this monstrosity, simplicity? And the answer was what? It took the survival of a nation to change the course of that boat's direction. The survival of the nation was on the line during World War II. And so what was simply a boat for entertainment, the tickling of the mind, became a boat for war. Preparing of troops, shipping them off to war, returning them home. It was the war that changed the mindset. You guys follow? In the same way as believers... It is what Christ has done that is to set our mindset for the future. It's what Christ has done to eradicate the very thing that has trapped us in this world. We now have the mindset to be what? At war. To be on a battle within ourselves, on a day-to-day, and around the world with us, and in the world around us on a day-to-day. A great example of this is uh, in the book of Daniel, the story of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he erected a golden statue for his own pride, his own ego. And he said, I made the statue, and when the 
tambourines and the lyres and the music and the orchestra, they play. Everyone in my kingdom must bow their knees to the statue in worship of the statue. But Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, when the harps and the lyres and all the trumpets were playing, you see a whole crowd of people just bowing their knees in fear of death, in fear of punishment, in fear of beheading, in fear of losing their lives, all bowing, whether they believe it or not, down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, except for Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, three friends who stood. And obviously they were taken to the king. And he says, your life will be forfeited if you do not bow to my statue. And Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, what did they say? They said, you can take our lives. My God, our God has the power to save us. But even if he does not, even if he will not, we will not bow our knees to worship the statue. It is an affront to our God, and we will not sin. I rather, what they were saying is we would rather suffer than to sin. I would choose to suffer than to sin. I would choose to put myself even in the hands of death than to dance with the very thing that took my Lord's life. Do we have that mentality, church? Choose to lose your job than to cheat your way up to the top. Choose to have less in your bank account than to lie your way to wealth. Choose to live humbly rather than to build a home on a premise of status and prestige. Choose to be hated and canceled on social media than to give voice, than to give into the voice of those around you telling you this is how the world works. This is what's important. This is how you should think. Choose to be ostracized by your family than to give in to their reckless culture. Church, you got to choose to live holy in a hostile world. What needs, what needs to come out of your life, what needs to be seen is suffering. That you would choose to suffer, that you would resolve to suffer rather than to sin. You know, some of you guys are thinking, PT, that's ridiculous, man. Like, you're not, you're not being realistic. You're not, you're not thinking this through. You're telling me to give up, to, to, to risk my job? That's my livelihood. To risk my home? That's where my kids live. To risk my wealth? How am I supposed to feed myself? If all these things you're telling me to choose to suffer rather than kind of maybe dance a little bit, I'm not doing it that bad. It's not, it can't be that harmful. You're not being realistic. Everything's gonna, I'm going to lose everything. My answer to you is very simple as this. How dare you? How dare you, with your lips, confess that you love your God, that you love Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, that he is Savior, with your lips profess it, and yet your heart is not actually there. You understand this on a human natural level. If your girlfriend, if your boyfriend, if something really bothers them about what you do, what would you do? Continue it? Of course not. For the sake of them, you would stop it because it hurts their heart to see you continue. It hurts their heart to see you live that way. And so now, how funny is it 
that before the living God in which you profess to love, to know to, as your Lord and Savior, that God who had to die because of sin itself, that you're willing to dance with sin just so that you can somehow, may or maybe or may not, play out this idea of wisdom. That I can lose my job, lose my home, lose everything, hated by the world. See, Christians were called to resolve to suffer rather than to sin. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, some, that was a rebuke for some of your hearts. You know, maybe if you just, maybe you say you follow Jesus Christ, but when tough times come, you run, right? But maybe, maybe a few of us in this church, you love Jesus Christ. You do. And in your heart, there is a war that's raging all the time, but sometimes you find yourself forgot. You forget. You take on the peacetime mentality. This is not a new thing, by the way. It's the scene in the Bible. King David did the exact same thing, right? King David, when the season of war was upon him, where was he? He sent all of his men out to war, and he was in his palace, living as if it was peace, when there was war around him. And what did he do when he's not arming himself? He finds himself free to dance around. He walks up to the roof of his palace, and he looks over, and he sees a beautiful young lady bathing. Rather than choose to go fight with his men, alongside with them, arm to arm, brothers among brothers, he stayed home, living in peace. And there it is. Rather than choose to suffer in the sin, he engaged and he danced with the idea of sin. I'm, I'm a king, by the way. Who would fault me if I sleep with her? Who would point a finger at me and say, that's wrong, King David, you can't do that. I am a king. And so what does he do? He calls her over. He sleeps with her. Worse yet, he impregnates her. He knows he's done wrong because her husband, one of his men actually, off to war, fighting. So what does he do? He tries to cover it up. He calls her husband home. Hey, Uriah, come home, man. Comes home. Uriah's like, why am I here? Right? He says, I just want to bring you home. War is tough. Come, eat with me. Go back home. Stay with your wife. He's trying to pull it off. Like he, he impregnated her, so he's like, you know, you go home. You sleep with her. So I says, your kid, not mine. Right? You know what Uriah said? A man who's armed for battle? A man who was always ready for war? He said, how can I do that? How can I find myself in comfort when the men, my brothers, are out there in war? I cannot. And so what did he do? He slept outside. He did not sleep with his wife. He did not even go home. He would not take the comfort of his bed. He chose to suffer. He armed himself with the mentality, I will not dance. I will not lay down these arms. See, church, if that's you and you find yourself in a peacetime mentality, and you've forgotten that the Christian life is a call to suffer, you've forgotten that your Lord, your Savior, your King suffered to break free the chains of sin that once binds you, then my call to you is this. Wake up. Arm yourself again. It's not too late. Wake up. Arm yourself again. Be vigilant. 
have the attitude, I'd rather choose to suffer than to sin again against my God. I'd rather choose to lose than to sin against my God. I'd rather choose to no longer be liked and hated by the world around me than to sin against my God. Resolve to suffer rather than to sin. But to live holy in a hostile world, to suffer, the second resolve that Peter tells us is that you have to resolve not to waste your life. Look at verse 2 and 3. Look what he says here. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing these pagan things, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. Peter's saying you have to resolve not to waste your life. We have one life to live. One life to live. You only get so much time here on earth. And I'm not going to give it up for what others have done and what you yourself have once known. Debauchery. When you know what that is? Debauchery is just an excessive indulgence. Right? Drunkenness. Orgies. Carousing. Detestable adultery. He's done these things. I'm not going to go back. I have one life to live. I know what's of value. Christ is of value, not these things, not these triva- tri- trivial things in my life. These are of no value. I have one life to live. I'm not going to waste it anymore. Our culture with social media and TikTok and the reels, you, like, you know how much we waste our time doing that? Like, I, I kid you not. Like, after I preached that message on um, receiving God's word, like, the first thing I do in the morning, I, I, I refuse now to open Facebook. I, just re- I refuse it because I know the moment. I, even, I don't do it on purpose. I might know there's a message. Someone's messaging me. It's like, I will not open it. I will get back to them later. Right? I will, when I get to my desk and I actually open the messenger thing, I will not open it now because for some reason, if I press the Facebook icon, Something pops up, my brain goes dead, and I'm just, and what becomes like, oh, I'm just for five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour later, it's like, oh my goodness, I have to get up, right? Time flies, and we waste so much of our time doing that. There was a quote when the TV was made. Someone said, our culture tells us to amuse ourselves into death. When the TV was made, Right? We no longer were able to tell stories. No longer able to engage in complex ideas. You know when you read stuff like, you know, the old guy, when the, like Thomas Jefferson, all those guys, they write stuff, you're like, man, who, who talks like that anymore? Right? How do people understand this? Do you know why we can't understand that stuff anymore? We've lost the ability to understand complexity. Because all we do in life now is live our lives by bite-sized bits. You know, I get so mad at those things sometimes. I'm not gonna, I'm, here's my public service announcement, right? Like, I didn't, like, these guys, they're like, oh, this is how you should clean, you know, you know do it yourself clean. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I'll look at that, right? I'm watching the, these new weird ways. I was like, oh, I'll try it, right? So I'll try it. It doesn't work. You know, I was like, man, like, I, I, I asked him, I like, I don't get it. Like, it doesn't work. Does it work for you? He's like, bro, they're just trolling you. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, they literally tell you this is what the steps to do. It's like, people do that just to, to what, to fool people? Yeah, to fool people like you. It's like, no. Like, they were so serious. It's like, I was, I was so upset. I mean, so upset for one thing, that I actually did it, right? Second thing, right, that, they, that I found out that people actually do that 
just to make fun of people who might go and actually do it, you know? Blew my mind. Anyways, our culture tells us to amuse ourselves to death. And we waste our lives doing that. We waste our lives every day. Even probably right now, you're probably on your social media reels going up and down, right? Right? It's all right. Keep going. Right? There's a message that John Piper gave back in the days when he was in his 50s to 40,000 college students. It's a huge stadium. He had one job only. To go up there, deliver a 40-minute message to challenge them to live for Jesus. And if you read the, I read the article about it, uh, sent over by Paul. I read it. And he says he, he doesn't like standing in crowds. He actually hates it. I'm like, bro, he, you're a preacher. So yeah, he hates it. And the wind was blowing. He couldn't be, he had to hold on to his sheet of paper while he's preaching this message. So he doesn't do his arm thing that he usually does. If you guys ever watched John Piper preach, he does a lot of his arm thing like, like that, right? So he had to hold on to one piece of paper while he tries to do it with one arm, right? And it was known as the seashell sermon because the illustration I'm about to share with you was so powerful, right? That it, it, it challenged a generation to live for Jesus. He goes like this. He steps up. He looks at this crowd among open wide space. He says, three weeks ago, Two members of our church, Ruby and Laura, were killed in Cameroon. Ruby, 80 years old, over 80, single her whole entire life, he says. A nurse poured her life out for one thing, to make Christ known among the sick and the poor and the hardest and most unreached places. Laura, the second person who died, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, joined Ruby after retirement, partnering up with Ruby after reti- in her retirement, also pushing 80, going from village to village in Cameroon. And as they were going, the car they were in on this hill, the brakes gave way. And over the cliff, they fell. Instant death. Two women died. He asked them, is this a tragedy? Is this a tragedy? 80-year-old doing this God-knows-what job in a God-knows-what-sake village. No one even knows. Now, leave behind a whole family. Is this a tragedy? He says. And you hear the the movement of the people, the kids, knowing what the answer is. Someone cries out, no, no. Two women, a whole life devoted to one idea. Jesus Christ magnified, he says, among the poor and the sick and the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts, their colleagues, had begun to throw away their lives on trivialities, in Florida, in New York, and all those retirement places, died in an instant off a cliff. Is this a tragedy? He goes on. He says, no. No, it is not. It is not a tragedy. 
But here's the crazy part. He whips out a magazine. He says, but I'll tell you what is a tragedy. It's a Reader's Digest story highlighting two couples. He reads it. He says, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when they were 59 and 51. Wow. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, they play softball, and they collect shells. He pauses. He looks at them. He says, that's a tragedy. That's the tragedy. And there are people in this country spending billions and billions of dollars to get you to buy into that tragedy, to get you to want that, to get you to seek for that, to run for that, to be numb towards that. Piper says, I have 40 minutes to tell you, do not buy into it. Do not give your love into it. Don't buy that dream. Don't let the last chapter of your life before the creator of the universe, as you stand before him and you tell him, God, look at my seashells. Look at my boat and my swing. It's off the rails. Don't waste your life, he said. How do we waste our life, church? How do we waste our lives? You buy into the lie of this life. You buy into the narrative that this is what you need. This is what you're made for. This is what brings comfort. C.T. Studd's poem. I don't know who he is. Again, Paul just quoted this guy, but I liked it. This is what he said. Only one life, and it will soon pass. But only what's done for Christ will last. Don't waste your life on the pursuit of a career only to desire the monetary gain, place in society, a retirement, a comfortable living. Rather, devote yourself to finding your call, the call that God has for you in the capacity that he has given to you to bring the good news to all whom Christ died for. Don't waste your life running after one career to the next. Simply to build on a castle, build on sands. Rather, devote yourself to answering his call in your life. His call in your life, in which he has saved you into, in which he has now given you a mission for, in which he has tell you, now live your life for this, my son and my daughter. Live it for this. Don't waste your life on the pursuit of money only to have it, only to have it offer you comfort and personal status. Rather, devote yourself to generosity. Finding ways to give to help and bless and protect and safeguard all those who cannot do it themselves. The God, I mean, some of you guys are blessed with the ability to make money. I'm, that's not me, right? You're blessed with it. God did not bless you with that simply so that you can live a comfortable, convenient life. He blessed you with that because he knows there are those who cannot help themselves unless the hand of grace comes into their life and pulls them out. Just like his hand came into your life and pulled you out. Don't waste your life 
on the pursuit of a relationship just for the sake of not feeling lonely, for the sake of this is my stage in life, for the sake of making myself happy or cared for. Rather, devote yourself to a spouse who together will create a spiritual legacy that when you stand before the Lord of hosts, he will say, well done, my good and my faithful servant. Look, look at the legacy in which you have left behind. The legacy of my name, a chain that's unbroken from generation to generation. How do we not waste our life, church? It is simply this. Stop asking questions like, is, is this a sin? Like, how much do I have to go before it becomes an actual sin? Like, I know drunkenness, but how far into it is drunkenness? Like, like is it after the third shot or the fourth one? Like, give me a, give me a qualitative number. I know orgies. No, I'm like, but like, when does it really become an orgy? Like, really? Like, after one, two, maybe three, right? It's when we begin to start questioning what is sin? How much can I dance on the line of sin before it becomes actual sin? Rather choose to what? Not even waste my life thinking about it. Not even waste my life considering that question. But to live my life with a momentum, a dedication, and a focus on what is the will of God. What is God's will for my life? What is God's will in this situation? What is God's desire for this? Oh, church, can you guys hear me? And I preach this message to you not because, because when I have to, because it's the next part in the section, right? But it is a hard message for me, your pastor. Pastor's confession, right? This is a hard message. Sometimes as an imposter syndrome, I always feel like, like, like really? Like, maybe this church would be a lot better if I wasn't their pastor. Maybe maybe they could have gone a lot further. But because I choose to live in peacetime mentality, we're still dancing. Not where we should be. But in this place where we feel pretty comfortable. We're not We're not lazy. We're also not very active either. And that's from your pastor, right? Here's a third resolve in the choice of suffering. Look at verse 4 to 6. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in, rec- in regard to the spirit. The third resolve Peter is telling us is resolve to lose in order to win. Resolve to lose in order to win. The world will see your actions. They will see your choice of suffering. They will see your choice of not wanting to waste this life. And what you're doing is going to be so con- counterintuitive to them that they will see you and they say, you're losing. You're behind. You're not there yet. You haven't made it. You, what are you doing? This is not how it's supposed to be done. And for a lot of you guys who, are, uh, who may not take Jesus very seriously, I get it. This sounds a lot crazy for you. Like, I don't want to suffer. That's dumb, right? I'm not wasting my life. I'm doing what everyone else is supposed to be doing. I'm moving towards the dream, right? I'm trying my best. I'm working X, I'm being X, I'm being good to people. I'm not wasting my life, PT. How dare you say that? But here's the thing. 
See first in verse 1, therefore. Right? He says, therefore. Because of what Christ has done, therefore, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Do you know why we are called into this? Do you know why I have to preach this to you? Because Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is God. Jesus will return. Jesus has defeated sin. He has resurrected, and he is going to come back. And he is the one who will judge the living and the dead. He is my king. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. And because of that, my response has to match that. My response in my life must match who he is, not dance around it. I try to figure a way to find a loophole that he says, okay, good job, son. You found a loophole, right? My response, as crazy as it is, must match the sovereignty of my king. Our action is always based on truth. For those of you guys, I'm not wasting my life. I'm living a good life. Do you realize because Jesus is who he says he is, that the very systems in which you live, in which you're a part of, in the very moral sense that you have for justice, for the rights of women, for the rights of minorities, for the right, all those things came from what? It came from him. It came from him declaring that all men and all women, our people, are made in the image of God. Therefore, now what? My response must match that. I go out and I fight. I go out and I stand up. My response matches my king. And so if you say, I can do that thing, but I can't do the other thing, then you have grievously, grievously, you're picking and choosing. And you're not being honest with yourself. Because if you say you have a moral sense of rightness, but you don't declare the one who actually gives the moral truth, And you're lying to yourself. And you are the hypocrite, actually, whether you know it or not. But here's this thing for you guys, for all of us who claim that Jesus is Lord. Let me ask you a question. Why don't people ask anything about the reason for the hope you have? I mean, we all do. It's like, oh, yeah, we do this because, you know, just hopefully opens a door. So people will ask us about the hope that we have. But you know what I tend to realize? Not a lot of people ask us that question. <laughs> are they like, like, are we not? Like, what's going on? Like, did we not run the event well? Like, what happened? Did, did, we, did we mess up somewhere? You know what it is? Because our life really isn't that different. See, in the scripture, they say what? They would think it's strange that you not plunge yourself with them in the same flood of dissipation. They think it's strange that you don't want to do that. They think it's strange when you don't want to desire for that, that you don't want to live for that. But here's the thing. When is the last time you live in such a way where that came forward? Or they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, you hate your job. I mean, the, the, um, this is how you respond to your work environment, your boss. Well, that's how I respond too, right? Because at the end of the day, they owe, we owe them nothing. They owe us nothing. I don't need to be moral and righteous in this job. I don't need to be selfless to work with excellent. I'm just going to do the bare minimum. And you're like, yeah, but you too, right? Yeah, no reason to work so hard. You're just like me. But then when 
they see a son or daughter who gains nothing, who gains absolutely nothing, doing excellent work, who, though they know in the back of their mind they can get fired at any moment, that they're just another piece in this little clog of work machine, they still work with excellent behavior. They still do more than what's asked of them. They still push, not complain. And then all their colleagues say, well, what are you doing, man? You're making us look bad. What are you doing, bro? Like, stop. That's ridiculous. You owe them nothing. They owe you nothing. At the end of the day, they can fire you at any moment. I know. I know. I know that I can lose my job. I know that all this work I'm putting into it may not even be recognized or appreciated. But I don't work for him. I work for my God. I work for my king. My excellence is a reflection of who he is. Because this is who he is. This is my response. Not because my boss is a selfish jerk or angry all the time or forces us to work. That's not the point. I'd rather lose. I'd rather not. I'd rather be seen as just some dude, some girl in the workforce who's doing good work, who's pushing the boundaries, doing everything I can. And if I get fired, I get fired. <laughs> you resolve to lose. Do you really stand out, church? Let me ask that. Does your life so, con- so contrary to the rhythms of this world, the narrative of this world, that it actually stands out? Or do you flow with it? Do you blend in? Do you just exist with them? To live holy life in a world of hostility. He calls us to suffer. And one of the ways in which we must suffer is to resolve to lose in order to win. Look at, look at the church back in the days. He says, those who are now dead, they live, they breathe, and they died for this message. Those who are now dead, for this reason we preach the gospel. They were, they were willing to choose the gladiatorial arena They were willing to be eaten by wild animals than to renounce the name of Christ, than to live any differently than what Christ has called them to live. Do you get that? I'm pretty sure if they came in, arrested these Christians, and they say, you know what? No, we're not. I'm just like you. I'm a Roman dude. I'm I'm, I'm just a slave. I'm just doing my own thing. No problem. Jesus Christ, whatever. You know, he's just an an afterthought. He's just one of of the things I'm just giving a shot at. I'm just looking at it. No. Nothing would have happened. But they chose to lose. They chose to not renounce the name of Christ. They chose to be burned alive and to give up that name. They were were willing to lose. Why? So that ultimately they would have victory. The Bible says this about Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He, for the joy set before Jesus Christ, he endured the cross. He faced what Satan and the hordes of hell thought was a 
unbelievable victory for them. They said, we got him. The son of God, the second of the triune, we got him. He's done. His mission, his work, destroyed. We beat him. He lost. And Jesus chose to lose. Why? Because from his death came the resurrection. From his death came life. From his death, victory for the world. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, and the joy was what? He knew that he would defeat sin. He knew that he would defeat the very thing that holds you down, that keeps you running and chasing in circles, that keeps you going through the narrative of every single age that comes. He knows that he can defeat it, regenerate you, restore you, bring you into his family, and bring you home. He knew, and so he chose to lose. Only to see victory, he chose death, only to see victory in the adoption of his sons. There's a World War II memorial, I think, uh, gravestone of a young World War II soldier in the 16s and 18-year-old, right? They went to war. And this is what's written on one of them. It says this, for your tomorrow, I gave my today. World War II soldier, younger than us, actually, went to war. A war that fought against the very evils that plagues our world. He went to war. And on his gravestone, it says, for your tomorrow, I gave my today. Believers, we, we resolve to lose today so that tomorrow we would bring sons and daughters home. How do you live holy in a hostile world? Church, are you willing to suffer? Not just embrace it. Not just, not just like, if it comes, I'll try. But to choose it. Would you choose to suffer would you, choose to, would you resolve to suffer rather than to sin? Would you resolve not to waste your life and have to endure the suffering of choosing to answer God's call? Would you choose to lose, resolve to lose and suffer because of that loss temporarily? Knowing at the end of the day, Jesus Christ says, I've come to make all things new. Church, I'm not in a faith that is meant to just kind of like tickle your minds and kind of make you feel nice. I believe with all my heart, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And if my knees are willing, I'll take a bullet for it. They don't buckle and fall. I preach this message to you not because I'm trying to get you to be some sort of weird masochistic group. I'm, teaching, I'm preaching this message to help you, remind you, is Christ really real in your life? If he is, then what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life? Choose to suffer. One life to live. It's gonna, you're going to lose. But the promise is what? 